Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you remain so distant? Why do you ignore my cries for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy. The praises of Israel surround your throne. Our ancestors trusted you and you rescued them. You heard their cries for help and saved them. You put their trust in, they put their trust in you and, and were never disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb, and you led me to trust you when I was a nursing infant. I was thrust upon you at my birth, and you have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in like roaring lions attacking their prey. They come at me with open mouths. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like the sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can, I can count every bone in my body. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my clothes among themselves and throw dice for my garments. O Lord, do not stay away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Rescue me from the violent death. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. Then I will declare the wonder of your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all of you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored the suffering of the needy. He has not turned and walked away. He has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you among all the people. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. Gee, who could this be talking about? We'll talk about that later. I'll get fixed in a second. Simon, give me the thumbs up when we're ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning is a day to celebrate the risen Christ, the one you rose from the dead. Today we celebrate the finished work of the cross as well. I pray that your Holy Spirit is the teacher today, the one who encourages, the one who brings revelation, bringing truth to light in us. Thank you for being so gentle to us. May we also be gentle with others. Amen. All right. Throughout the course of church history, many things have been taught, and this particular one, I'm going to, once, once I can get to that slide, Simon, tell me when I have control, because you know I like control. <laughs> Are we there? Almost there? Okay, I'm just going to talk for a minute while they get that figured out, which is what I do, I get paid to do that. There we go. Okay, I want to talk about a thing called forsaken. This is a... a uh, a verse that we've heard many times, and I know throughout church history, 
um, many things have been taught or, or have been, this, this, I think this text has been taken out of context and led people to believe something I think is untrue about who God is and what happened at the cross. So perhaps I can help you or help us revisit another category that you may not have thought of. Throughout church history, there have been many, many people who've sincerely believed certain things about who God is, what the Bible says. Even the term the Bible plainly says has been used so many times. But unfortunately, what it may plainly say to you, it may not plainly say to the person sitting beside you. And the person sitting beside you could plainly see something you can't see, but it's plain to them. Do you know what I mean? Can you see where all the, the misunderstandings and the, uh, the challenges of theology? I think one thing I've learned over the last four years, and this is still a learning curve, I was challenged just really recently, uh, about tone, about demeanor in how we approach it, finding a, a gracious way to, uh, to talk about the um, disagreements in our faith. And one thing that hit me... Um, I grew up in a certain category of churchianity. And in that churchianity stretch, uh, that background, I grew up with one set of understanding. This is what I was taught, and this is what you believe, and that's it. You didn't question it. It's just what you grew to believe. But then I've been exposed to many different other tribes and groups and denominations and other faiths. And then I was exposed to more church history that I wasn't told about. And in that journey, and I'm still on it, I don't think I'll be done this one, I'm finding that there are many different perspectives of how to understand the scripture, not just what it plainly says, but what it, plain, what it, what it means. There's a big difference. It's like this one here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the Bible plainly says, you know, you could pull that out of there and say, God forsook Jesus. You can plainly see that. How many can plainly see that? You don't have to agree with it, but can you plainly see it? Yes. So maybe we should give people a bit of room. And I'm speaking to myself, too. The idea of not being as dogmatic. I I know my conviction. I know what I believe about this. But how we talk about it and how we open the door for conversation. See, I could come right in and I I have done this. um, And forgive me when I have. But when I, I come in and say, this is wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. Nobody here has ever done that, right? Especially when it comes to theology. Well, I, I would not teach anything I don't believe. I, I can't do fake. Everything you've heard from me in the last 14 years, I've taught from my heart. And if you've been here long enough, you've watched a journey in me, haven't you? You've, you've seen changes, developments even course corrections in our understanding of what we see Scripture to mean. To me, it's getting better and better. The love of God's getting bigger and bigger than I ever dreamed of. So part of the journey of doing a theological change or developing or having discussions with individuals is realizing there are other perspectives. And all those individuals came to that perspective with sincere prayer, deep conviction, and a love for God. 
You know, after all, 44,000 denominations. Think about it. You know, oh, we, we have a, a change of belief, so let's start another church. Just start another one. We're just a bit better. <laughs> it's really funny how, how all the hopping happens and all the changes happen and all the division. And yet, when we recognize we are one with Christ and we can see each other as one with Christ. And if I'm one with Christ and you're one with Christ, guess what? We are one with each other. Which should change our thinking. So, what I want to talk about today. Forsaken. Really? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think this is addressing a misconception I had growing up. I was taught that God separated himself from Jesus at the cross. I'd like to offer another category because... There are people who believe that, and they have the proof texts, and they have the verses, and I believed this myself. But I want to show you where I'm at in my journey. I'm going to invite you to consider it. I don't want anybody to come shoving a, a fist in my face and say, you're wrong, Mike. Well, that's nice. Saying I'm wrong and you're right and all that is unhelpful. It does not leave room for discussion. When we get in someone's face and immediately create a dividing line, all discussion's gone. I have friends who uh, are complete Calvinists, others who are Armenianists. I have Universalist friends. I have Trinitarian friends, all these different categories of theology. We do not all agree on everything. So what? We have a great time together. We can have a really fun time. We can even watch hockey together, and last night was amazing. Yes. Just saying. We need to show grace when things don't happen and things aren't heard the way we're used to. I heard this brutal, brutal story of something that happened, I think it was yesterday. Grace was shown after a particular woman worked so hard all day, creating the perfect meal for her kids, grandkids, just all the work that went into it and the planning and the detail. Oh, it was wonderful. Then they enjoyed the meal. And then she sent her husband out, go get the cake, dear. All this work. Sound familiar, Rod? Anyway, pulls the cake out. What? How would I know that? The revelation of the Holy Spirit, I tell you. Be sure your sins will find you out. This smushed cake and the loving wife comes in. It's okay. Jerk. It's okay. It's okay. It's fine, dear. Because it's the child is two. They'll never know. They'll make it look like that in 30 seconds. Grace, when there are disagreements. Perhaps today we can find a gentle way and I can build a case for that Jesus was not forsaken at the cross. Baxter Kruger, how many know that name? If you have not read Baxter Kruger's material, you need to. It's deep, it's powerful. Yes, that's a tree. Can you hit the, Simon, can you turn the big lights off for just a second? I want people to see this. Okay, that, that, that's a tree. 
I have to cut a tree down in my yard. I'm thinking, oh, I've got to cut a tree down. It's like this big. But this is a tree. Baxter Kruger had a vision. And in this vision, the Lord was speaking to him and saying, hey, there, there are two big blocks, two barriers that seem to be preventing the flow, the fresh water of the Holy Spirit into the Western church. Two big things stopping understanding. Huge, and he saw them as trees, and they were sequoia trees. Look how big that is, and look at this one. But even more, look at the size of that saw. Like, really? That's incredible. And then her look, why are you making me do a selfie with you? So, anyway. The two logs represent two misconceptions holding back free-flowing living water to the Western world. And these, this is his interpretation right now. So misconception one is of separation, and this comes from Greek philosophy, dualism. That God is out there, separated from us, and that we are here. And it comes from the Greek gods and mythology. It does not come from Scripture. The second misconception, the other log, is an understanding of who the Father really is. This has been my joy. This one was not hard for me to get. This one is a continuing journey for me. You can turn the light back on, Simon. The idea that our Heavenly Father is actually good, that He is just like the Son. Jesus is just like His Father. It is Jesus who said, if you've seen me, You've seen my father. Because the disciples were saying, hey, okay, can we see the father? It'd be a really cool trick. Come on, show us the father. They did not know he was the representation of the father. He was one with the father. These are the two big misconceptions that we have to wrestle through. And I think if we understand we are not separated from God, there is no such thing as separation. I've talked about that many times here. That will help you in your approach to recognizing God is with you, in you, through you, and in all things. I'm not talking about new age. I'm talking about the life of God, the love of God, holding all things together. I'm not talking about pantheism or anything like that. This is biblical truth. There's a pretty good proof text that I think plainly make it clear. <laughs> so <laughs> it's become more and more plain to me. But I have to be careful. That's my perspective, and I like it. Um, who is the Father? So Matthew 27, verse 46 says this. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbat, and that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> I just like that interpretation. All right. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This has been a proof text used by individuals to say, see, God turned his back on Jesus. Let's take a look at some reasons why I don't think that is true. There's another way to see this. Another way. Insights to show why Jesus was not abandoned or forsaken at the cross. First of all, Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity cannot be separated. It would cease to exist the Father and I are one, Jesus said in John 10, verse 30. And where was God in all of this? Where was he? He wasn't turning his back. He was actually in Christ, reconciling the world. Where did the reconciliation of the world take place? 
at the cross. Where was God? God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, that one's a head smash right there. Okay, just, just for a minute. Okay, rabbit trail. Look, a squirrel. <laughs> not counting their trespasses against them. How many times do we let on to people that God's going to get you for your sin? How many times do we have this idea God's going to punish like crazy? And yet, at the cross, before anybody said the prayer or believed, he still did not count their trespasses against them. Hmm. That tells you something powerful. There's something going on in the backstory we've not talked about enough in the historical Western church, at least. The Eastern church totally gets this. They've seen this for 2,000 years. We in the West have not seen it. We believe in dualism and separation, which I no longer do. I didn't know I did until it was revealed to me. Take a look at this. This is by a guy named Bob Pacintio. It is ontologically impossible. The word ontologically means the essence of God, the essence of a thing. We're talking about God now, the ontological truth of who God is, his very essence. The ontologic, it is ontologically impossible for there to be a split between any persons of the eternal trinity. The doctrine of the trinity simply defined is that within the nature of the one true God, there are three eternal, distinct persons. The Father, the Son, Hold still. And the Holy Spirit. These three persons are the one God. We do not believe in a rationally contradictory God of one God and three gods, or one person and three persons, but one God and three persons. While others exist in generic or species identity, such as three humans sharing in humanness, God exists in numeric identity, such that each person is the one God. Each person is the one God. If all humans but three die, there would not be any trinity of humans. And the nature of humanity itself would not be diminished by the absence of one of the remaining humans. But in the nature of God, his eternal triunity, invisible, any split in the trinity would result in the destruction of the very being of God. This is where this stuff's been written about. Did God die? Like lots of books out there on this. The Trinity cannot be divided. They are one. I think that's pretty clear. Next, another insight. When Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe he was saying, where the heck are you? Okay, I don't think that's what he was doing. I believe he was quoting. I believe completely he was quoting Psalm 22. Jesus Christ was the first line of a song David's 22nd Psalm, in which it was recorded, he did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried. That's the answer. I I wasn't supposed to have it up there. Pretend it's not there. Two suggestions of why Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. So I think there's a couple of ways to see this. Again, this is where the gentleness of allowing other opinions to come in here. Um, The first is this. It's been said, he felt the darkness and the weight of sin and was remind, well, that he was reminding himself that he was not abandoned, even though he may have felt it. So perhaps he was, in his full humanness, as the God-man, completely not feeling it. 
Where's God? Where is all this? Is it possible he was saying it to remind himself because he knew all of Psalm 22? Here's another part that was really cool. Oh, by the way, in the garden, he was very aware of God's presence as he prayed, correct? And he prayed with sweat sweat drops of blood. It was so intense, but he was fully aware of the presence of God with him. And I think the cross was even more heightened. Like, if there's going to be agony, it's even more agonizing there. But he remembered his purpose. Something else I thought of, and I just got that this morning, this. (laughs) Do you remember we've been talking about Jesus was abiding in the Father? He didn't do anything on his own, but only what the Father did. He didn't even know the thoughts of people unless the Father revealed it to him. He didn't even know their their conditions of what they needed healing from until the Father revealed it to them. He was living in absolute dependence, moment by moment, instant by instant on the Father. Is it possible then, while abiding in the Father on the cross, that the Holy Spirit, God the Father, together whispered in his ears, can't abandon you. I already promised I wouldn't. Is it possible? It's possible. I'm not going to get dogmatic about it, but man, it pitches what God does to us. While we abide in Christ, he reminds us, other times you feel God's absent? Where is God in our pain? Why? Why is this happening to us? And yet, even in that darkness, Holy Spirit still can speak to us and remind us, I'm here. You're not alone. It's impossible for me to abandon you. It's possible. It's also possible, and this, I like this one too. This is probably my favorite one because I think he was aware of God's presence. And this both can be true. It's totally awesome. Sure. I think he might have been declaring that the prophecy of Psalm 22 was happening at that very moment, connecting the dots for his listeners. Psalm 22, my God, my God. All the people, all the religious leaders nearby, and there were a lot of them because they wanted him dead, they knew Psalm 22. They knew Psalm 22, 23, 24 were the messianic psalms. There's lots more. I'll show you a list in a few minutes. But oh my goodness, I, I, it's possible. He was declaring at this moment, it's happening. Re, they knew the psalm, piercing his hands, abandonment, tearing his clothes, casting lots. Do you think it was a coincidence? A God incidence? It's possible. But even still, both of these thoughts lend itself to the fact that God did not turn his back on his son, but was intricately involved in every step of the journey, the road to the cross, on the cross, and right through it, right till now. Number three, Jesus was acting in obedience. In Philippians 2.8, it says he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is obedience. It is Is it consistent with the character of God for the Father to reward Christ's obedience with rejection? (laughs) When your kids obey, you kind of, yeah, that's great. You know, really, you obeyed? No, that's for teenage stage, but anyway. (laughs) There's some joy there. There's not abandonment. There's not rejection. There's running to. It's very different. On the contrary, Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ's sacrifice was an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. 
It was a beautiful thing. What they were doing with man killing Jesus on the cross, letting the wrath out on Jesus, they were using that for the glory of God. What we saw as evil, God was turning for good. The cross is the best picture, the best evidence of where man's intention was for absolute evil. God said, I'm going to submit to that. Oh, yeah, and I'm going to take you down with me. (laughs) It's the most beautiful picture of redemption. All the cross. Number four. There's been um, uh, a phrase tossed around that God cannot look at sin. How many have heard that? I grew up with this. Okay, God cannot look at sin. Well, the Bible plainly says that. That is a fact. How many agree? You're allowed to put your hand up. Don't be all shy. Does the Bible say God cannot look upon sin? Yes, it does. Is it out of context? Yes, of course it is. But it does say it. For those in a camp that say, see, the Bible says it. There's more going on here. Context is critical. Here's an example. How many of you... uh, um, no, 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 that's a bad one. Um, hmm. Okay, guys, just for fun. I see everybody has two eyeballs, right? All the men anyway, and I bet you some women too. How, how many have ever lusted after anything? Yeah, yeah, don't have to put your shoulder pants up because that's, we, we know that, right? That's a rhetorical question. Women, you've lusted after the clothes and the store and the purses and other men, and men have lusted after women and cars and, and sports teams hoping they'd win. You've, you've, you've lusted. It's happened. And yet the Bible plainly says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So why aren't you doing it? Which, which rules are you going to listen to? Oh, does context have anything to do with this? You betcha. Yes, it does. Take a look. God can look upon sin. Absolutely. He's not allergic to it, just like Superman can't handle kryptonite. All right? That's not the way God sees sin. This is a far more beautiful picture. Here's the verse. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. That's what it says. Then why do you? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? If you can't look at at sin, why do you? This is a big question. This was Habakkuk's pronunciation of his theology, not God's. His perspective. And he got his perspective all the way back from the garden. Right back from when Adam and Eve sinned. God knew full well what they did. And he still came to them, even though they sinned. It did not repel God. It's Adam and Eve whose minds were changed. They thought, you're too holy, we've got to cover up, we can't, you can't handle this. Do you see how that distortion began in the garden? And it's just ripped right through? Even to today, these misunderstandings. Context is critical. Read the whole thing. It's Habakkuk who was asking the question. It's ha- it was Habakkuk who had the flawed perspective of God. 
And my hope is that we can develop and mature in our perspective of who God really is and find more gracious ways to study it, to share it, to teach it, and to have it revealed in us. If God can't look at sin, then we have a real problem. First of all, is Jesus' standard different than the Father? And yet they're one essence? If God says, no, I can't, but Jesus says, well, I can. It's okay. I'll, you know, I'll do my thing. But God, you can't find. They're the same essence. Is Jesus more merciful than the Father? Oh, I'm going to get them. Oh, I can't, I can't believe it. Oh, they did so wrong. I'm going to get them. No, hang on, God. I got it. Do you remember these holes? You know, I did it all for them. See the hands? Hand, got it. Tuck to the hand. <laughs> That's not what happened. God is not less merciful than Jesus. They are the same essence. And if you think the other way around, if you believe God is the angry one, everything you read, your whole skew, your perspective on the reading of the scriptures will change your perspective. But the Bible plainly says, yeah, and it plainly says this to me. So where do we go? <laughs> we need loving discussion. Not a fight over the wrong tree in the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of right and wrong. And the more we fight using that tree, who's more right, who's more wrong, and having the one-up, there's no discussion. Just totally stop talking. Because if love and the tree of life is not the source of any of these discussions, it will bear no fruit for righteousness. Gentleness. Seek to understand. Seek to be understood. Be teachable. Allow people to have an honest perspective. Say, this is, how, this is the conclusion I've come to for now. All of you should be at that for now stage. Don't ever be at the, this is my conclusion. Although I do believe in my full conclusion, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, there, there's some, there are some, in my mind, absolutes. But as we discuss certain things, there's room there's different traditions. There's the Anglican, there's the Presbyterian, there's the Catholic, there's the Orthodox, there's the Baptist, there's the Pentecost. You have all these traditions in history. Each have value. Each have been built on a foundation that was authentic love and a heart to know God better. Be careful. I'm speaking to myself. I've not arrived at this. And it sometimes sneaks out in more terse terms. <laughs> what we do see is that God can't look upon sin with approval. As in, it's okay to do that. He doesn't do that. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. He runs towards those who are in sin. Where he runs towards those who are hurting. Jesus became sin for. What do you mean he's allergic to it? He became it. He's attracted to the hurting. He's attracted to those who need help, who are blind, lost. If Jesus is, and we're one with him, is it evident that we also are attracted to them? Or we haven't realized that yet? That we can reach out to help and love that we can become a community that reaches out to the hurting, the lost, those who feel they're not loved, the abandoned, 
and to tell them they have not been abandoned and show them the profound love and presence of Christ. The Psalms are filled with many prophecies about Christ. There are prophecies about the Messiah's birth, prophecies about the nature and the name of the, of the Messiah. There are prophecies about the Messiah's ministry, what he's going to do, about the resurrection and exaltation, and of course the betrayal and death, which is Psalm 22. It's all there. Oh, wait a minute. How many thousands of years before Christ's birth, or hundreds and hundreds of years, depends on when, when they're written, before Christ's birth were these things written? You can't make this stuff up. There isn't a uh, time capsule, <laughs> you know, that makes sure you have this stuff happen so that whatever we wrote back then really does happen, you know, and then you got to find it at the right time. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. And there's no such thing as time travel yet. Right? Like, so, how, how? so obviously, somebody was at work instructing the writers to write what they wrote. And seeing it fulfilled is it gives faith and hope that you can trust the Word of God. You may not understand it all, as I don't. You don't. But the Holy Spirit does. And it is the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. I don't have time for this slide, but I'm just going to show off for a minute. But in here, Psalm 22, it shows you that it talked about his crucifixion. It talked about uh, he'll pray without ceasing before his death that he'll be despised and rejected by his own. This is all in Psalm 22, that he'll be mocked, that he'll be abandoned by his disciples, that he'll be, he will be encompassed by, the wicked, be, by wicked beings. Uh, from the Messiah's body will flow blood and water. He'll be crucified with thirst. He'll be thirsty when he's dying. This is all Psalm 22. We will observe, he will be observed by the Gentiles at his con, uh, crucifixion. Then he'll be observed by the Jews at his crucifixion. The hands and feet will be pierced. His garments will be parted among the soldiers to the casting of lots. This all happened. But this is this, if somebody did a fortune telling and it happened this detailed, would you give some credibility to that person doing the fortune telling? Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. The Holy Spirit foretold. This is good news. And I can't read all that right now because it's too much. But I'm going to end with this. I was going to point them out in the verses, but I think time won't let us. I want to end with really, really good news. This is my conclusion. This is what I've come to believe. This is what I see the scriptures say to a heart that is longing to know who God is and where he is. Listen carefully. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
Easter does not get any better than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you be the one who brings revelation and enlightenment. For those here who may be questioning, where are you, do you exist? How do you exist? How does it work? And all those questions, man can't answer it, but you can. You can answer from spirit to spirit, from your spirit to their spirit. I pray you reveal your love and your presence and your intent to have a relationship with every single person here and seeing this and hearing it. I pray this in Jesus' name.